We turn in the Word of God this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we resume our study going through this letter. Good to see our brother Charlie back out in the house of God. Glad you're feeling somewhat better. Obviously not 100%, otherwise he would have been behind me today. But <laughs> it's good that he's here. It's also good to see children, if they have to leave during the service, running back into their pew. Thanks for the encouragement, Levi. Appreciated that. He was running down the hill there to get back, to see the keenness to get back in the place where he can join his mom and worship the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to read just verse 13 this morning. We have gotten as far as this point, looking at the opening 12 verses of the second chapter, taking some time to see all that we can learn from those verses. But we come to the 13th verse, and this will be our only verse today as we consider the Word of God together. Let us read it with intent. May the Spirit of God be very much upon our hearts, even as it is read. And may, even as we read the Word, there be that deep sense of appreciation that this is the Word of God. And where would we be without the Word of God? For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. We're going to be considering this morning experiencing the transformative power of the word of God experiencing the transformative power of the Word of God. But before we do that, let us pray. Lord, we come to Thee. We desire that Thou wilt bless all that have gathered here today. Remember those that are absent. Be with the Allisons. Be with the Juckstocks. Be with Mrs. Pinkston. We pray, Lord, that Thy hand would be upon those of our aged and firmed and senior individuals. How much they would love to be here just to be present to hear the Word. So let us not allow the privilege to be diminished in our view that in Thy kind providence we are here. Pour out Thy Spirit then. We ask for the seed which is always good, to find good soil that it might bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold to the glory of thy name. Fill this preacher with the Spirit of God. Without thee we can do nothing. So grant that divine wisdom and enablement and carry us along by thy Spirit. May the Holy Ghost fall on all that hear the word. Signs following, souls being saved. God's people being edified, and even the prodigal returning to the Father's loving embrace. Hear prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We come to verse 13 of this portion of the Lord's Word, and we are coming therefore to a, a, a transition really in the thought and subject of the Apostle's material. We have seen already in the opening 12 verses him focusing upon a defense of his preaching and pastoral ministry among the folks there at Thessalonica. And we come now to the fruit of his labor, essentially, where he mentions in verse 13 the conversion of the Thessalonians that were there that he ministered to along with Titus and Timothy uh, during the occasion that they were there. We know that he is referring to their conversion when he talks about them receiving the Word of God because in verse 14 he goes on to say, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches. We know from this two things that he is talking about their conversion and he is also referring back to the original founding members, if you like, of this church. He is thinking back to them and, and drawing again to their, the forefront of their minds what happened on that occasion as he thinks of the fruit of his labor there during that time. What verse 13 does for us is highlight the vital place the Word of God had in establishing the church in this city. And I want to underline that, that the Word of God was critical in establishing the church. Even in what we were singing this morning, it made reference to the fact uh, that the Lord has given us, He has given us this, this thing in which there are these precious jewels, even the Word of God. And that order is important. It's important because the church of Rome would seek to establish that what comes first is the church, and the church gives them the Word. And that has the whole, the, the wrong way around. That is not the order. And what Paul is dealing with here in verse 13, as we shall see, we can, we can draw from it, even at this point, an understanding that it is the Word that comes first. They went into that city, they brought the Word of God, and that Word gave life to the church. This is what happens. This is always the order. It is the Word that gives life. Even in the very creation itself, which has its gospel application. And God spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. It was by His Word that light came into existence. And the Apostle Paul draws the illustration in terms of the gospel, that the light of the glorious gospel shines into your hearts, but it was by the sovereign spoken command of the Lord. The Lord gives His Word, and what follows then is the church. That's the product of the Word. It is that order. And we should never allow the church of Rome to say, no, the church is first. Mother church, and the church gives you the Word. Therefore, what she's trying to do there is elevate our allegiance to authority to the church, and not primarily to the Word of God. Something Martin Luther was very aware of, and stood in conviction against our conscience must be bound by the Word. It must be coming to this. And when an organization clearly opposes the Word, even if they say that we originated that, we must stand against it. God creates by His Word. We ourselves came to life into being by His Word. And this is what happened in this city. And verse 13 is going to emphasize that. And of course, the Apostle Paul deals with this elsewhere. You think of Romans chapter 10, verse 17, where he says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word. That faith comes about by the Word. There must first be the preaching, the application, 
the delivery of the Word. The same we can see even in the book of Acts, whenever Cornelius, who is a, a good man in many respects, and is seeking to know the truth, God in His mercy in response to his desire to know that truth, tells him to send for Peter. And Peter comes because Peter would tell him words whereby thou mayest be saved. Cornelius needed to have the words spoken to him, and that was, that was the first aspect of his experience of sovereign grace. The Lord would send him a preacher. The preacher would open the Scriptures, declare the truth to him, and from the declaration of truth, rightly received by the power of the Holy Ghost, that person comes to life. So let us not fall into the trap that Rome would have us fall into of prioritizing and setting on the pinnacle uh, first the church and then the Word, because this verse itself even militates against that. Paul came there, didn't draw attention to himself, but to the Word, and by the preaching of that Word, there was the establishment of a New Testament church, life from the dead by the preaching of the Gospel. This is a wonderful text. Before I say anything about it, I want you to see how it reflects even the very prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 17. That high priestly prayer that He offered that is full of theological instruction. And in verse 8, and this is with particular application in the context to the disciples, but it can certainly have its application to those that the disciples and the apostles would instruct even to our day. Where in verse 8 the Lord Jesus prays, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. I have given them the word. And they have received them. And have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. We're going to see this coming to pass right here. In this occasion on, in this city. And of course he goes on then to pray in verse 17 of John 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And that's his desire. And when I read verse 13, I saw the answer to prayer that Jesus Christ was offering even for those that he had shed his blood for in the city of Thessalonica. He was praying. Praying for the, going, the, the forward movement of the church. Praying for the going forth of the word. Directing the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Titus to the city. And then commanding blessing upon their efforts. And it was an answer to his prayer that these people would receive the Word that had been given. And then that they might continue to experience the sanctifying power of that Word as well. So as we consider then experiencing the transformative power of the Word of God, note with me, first of all, there will be a recognition of the Word of God. There will be a recognition of the Word of God. In the midst of the text, he says, "...ye received it," that's the Word of God, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. You received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. They recognized the difference between what men say and what God has said. And if you remember the cultural context, you had many individuals who would call themselves and practice the kind of career movement of being a philosopher, a thinker of the day proclaiming their ideas and their understanding and, and developing upon the thoughts that had been handed down to them by their masters. There was, there was much emphasis given to thought, but as the Word of God came to these individuals in this city, 
they recognized, they were able to distinguish the difference between the word of men and the word of God. That it wasn't coming from Paul, just another philosopher, but God himself, the creator of the ends of the earth, and the maker of themselves even, with whom they have life itself, that he upholds them by the word of his power and so on, understanding this God had given his word. Now, if people are to experience the transformative power of the word, this is important that they recognize the word of God for what it is. Paul is drawing this out, that this was a positive. You recognize the word of God for what it is. And if that's going to happen, and the transformative power of the word of God is going to be experienced, that is important. Now, in this then, it necessitates preachers drawing attention to the word of God. That's the first thing. It necessitates preachers drawing attention to the Word of God. Rather than drawing attention to their own words, the preachers come in and draw attention to God's Word. And this, if you go back to Acts chapter 17, was what the Apostle Paul did. We have it very plainly given to us in Acts 17 verse 2, again relating to his activity in this particular city. It says, He reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He opened the Word of God. Now, here we are doing the very same thing. I trust we're following something of a similar format of what the Apostle Paul did in his time. He would come and stand before men and open up the Word. Now, we have the benefit of what the Apostles have given to us as well as the Old Testament Scriptures, but we are coming with an inspired Word. We are declaring not our own ideas. We're saying, look, here is what is authoritative, opening it up, making men to understand it, and driving the application of the text with power to their hearts. And this is what he did. He reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He called their minds to pay attention not to his own ideas, but to what was in the Word of God itself. And of course, this resulted in change in those that responded to it. But mere change itself can happen in anyone's life, regardless of exposure to the Word. There are many people who have gone to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they change as a result of following the steps and going through all of that, they change. They, that happens, that occurs. But the change that glorifies God, the purpose for which we exist, necessitates us coming back to what God has said. Not 12 steps put together by man, but the Word of God. And we draw attention to this, and it becomes the platform upon which we stand as we declare authoritatively what men need to receive. This is what the Apostle Paul did. This is what we need to continue to do if there is going to be the experience of the transformative power of the Word. Again, people may change. You may put before them certain ideas and they will adopt them and it will result in change. Ideas always have consequences. Always. But the change that matters is the transformative change that took place in this city when the Word of God was brought before them. No doubt other philosophers would come and they would present ideas and they would be received by some and it would have a dramatic impact, even a very visible impact, in the lives of those that would receive those ideas. But again, those things do not matter. We are made to glorify God. And He results, He, he causes rather, a transformative effect to be occurring in our lives when He works His Word into us. When we're transformed, when we're born again, when we receive, as Peter, or James rather puts it, the engrafted Word that is able to save our souls. 
So preachers must draw attention to the Word. We might just say generally, Christians must draw attention to the Word. You have to draw attention to the Word. You come alongside people if you want to help them. Don't, <laughs> don't be covert about it. Coming in with some certain angle and they get on board and then, and then you kind of surprise them with the Word of God, hoping for change. You bring the Word of God to them. There was nothing covert about Paul going into this city. He walks into the synagogue, as was his manner, opened up the Scriptures, and he preaches to them. Preaches the Gospel clearly to their hearts. So this is our duty as well. Draw attention to the Word. If there's going to be the recognition of the Word, not as the Word of man, but as it is in truth the Word of God, there has to be drawing attention to it. But secondly, also, there must be, it necessitates, if there's going to be the recognition of the Word, it necessitates preachers showing admiration for the Word of God. Showing admiration for the Word of God. When Paul went into that synagogue, as he did on other occasions, there was no question mark as to the place of the Word of God in his life. It was abundantly clear that here was a man that loved the Word of God. And he gave himself to that Word. And it, was, it, just, it just poured out of his life. And those who were willing to accept it and, and see it for what it was, it, it was plain. It was plain, here's a man that loves the Word. He would take exhortations such as we read in Psalm 1, that his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight. Not just his allegiance is to the law of the Lord. That's, that's well and good. Our allegiance should be to the, the Word of God. But our delight is in the Word of the Lord. How many, how many have there been, even in the past, even to the present, that live in such a fashion that say, I appreciate, I value the Word of God. And they will apply it within a certain narrow context and people who are under the authority of that individual can see through it. No, you take Scripture and you apply it where you want it, but there are glaring inconsistencies in your life where you will not apply the Word of God where it affects yourself. They can see through it. And they know, therefore, they don't love the Word. They're just using it as a baton to beat people with. But whenever a man handles the Word in a certain way, even preachers, Christians, as they give testimony to the Lord's grace in their life, there must be exhibited a delight in the law of the Lord, as Psalm 1 puts it. Or as Psalm 119, verse 97 puts it, Oh, how I love thy law. Oh, how love I thy law, I should say. It is my meditation all the day. I love I thy law. I love it. There's admiration, there's affection here toward the Scriptures. You remember also when the psalmist in Psalm 19 deals with the Word of God that revealed how God reveals Himself in a special revelation in contrast with his, the natural revelation that is revealed through the psalm. He puts it this way. He describes the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the judgments of the Lord. And he went on to say about these things, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, the much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. You can't live believing that and it not be manifest in your life. It's no, there's, there's no possible way that you can say that God's Word, His judgments, His law, His commandments, His statutes are more desired than gold and it not be apparent to those that come in contact with you. It has to be seen. 
And I'm quite certain when, when Paul went to any place, there could be no question mark over his allegiance and love of the Scriptures. He gave himself to them. Matthew Henry, that great, and I recommend him. I, I, think he, I don't hear his name mentioned as often these days as perhaps he once was, but if you're coming to Scripture and you're looking for light in Scripture, do not forget Matthew Henry. And he said this, A good man, wherever he goes, carries his Bible along with him, if not in his hands, yet in his head and in his heart. End quote. A good man. He carries his Bible. And you can see that when you meet someone that, that not, is, is not just able to quote Scripture, but there, there, there's something about their affections that, that connect with the words that they say. There's something that, that moves their heart and, and how you can see it even in their eyes seem to, to sparkle when they talk about Scripture. They love God's Word. They love all that He has given to them. And if men are going to see the difference between the words of men in contrast with the Word of God, I think this is an important aspect. You received it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth the word of God. For them to recognize the difference between the word of man and the word of God, it is, it is seeing hearts that are on fire with the word. Lives that are ignited. Their, their whole motives are, are moved by this. I mean, the very fact that Paul is standing in this city, and they would ask him the question, why are you here? Because of the word. Because of the word. Because of what the Lord has done. And I, I cannot deny it. My... my his heart was aflame with love for the Scriptures and for the God that gave them. So as we carry the Word of God around, whether it be in our hands, or I trust also in our hearts and our heads, let it be with a sense of admiration. It will help the world to recognize the Word of God for what it is. It's different. It's different. Even when we're analyzing politics and what's going on in the world, to come back and... and Speak Scripture into what's going on. But if there's going to be a recognition of the Word of God in contrast with the Word of man, it also necessitates preachers establishing the authority of the Word of God. The preacher will certainly teach that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and sufficient. And without getting into those specific doctrines and the nuances of the doctrine of the Word of God, Two verses or two passages are, are particularly relevant in relation to that. When Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. There, you see right from the outset, Paul said, All Scripture, all Scripture, all of it, every part of it, is God-breathed. God has breathed it out. It's not coming from the, men, the mental powers of Paul. It is coming from God. God is breathing it out. God has given it. God is behind it. And that is why, therefore, not only is it inspired and without error, because it comes from a God without error who cannot lie, but it also then is sufficient. It must be profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, may be complete. The Word of God completes the life of men. No, they don't need church tradition, though Rome will tell you otherwise. That you need something additional to the Word of God. No, we deny it. 
While tradition, in part, in some aspects, can be helpful, it is not necessary for God's purpose for our lives. The Word of God is sufficient to make us complete, to live for His glory as He has intended. He has has breathed it out and given everything we need for life and for godliness. Never think you need something more. Yes, I encourage reading of good material. I encourage meditation and, and consideration of good material. We should all be reading something and, and, and giving ourselves to history and other aspects and topics and subjects at various times and seasons. We should gird up ourselves with, with wisdom of the past, sometimes even of the present, though I would tend to lean upon the past more heavily than upon the present. But, drawing from the wells of men that are good, but again, the Word of God is sufficient because it is inspired and inerrant. Or as Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 21, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And this is, what, this is what's happening. It's holy men of God are being moved by God. They, it's not the will of man that's being exercised or, or conveyed down through the annals of history. God is giving His word through holy men as they are moved by the Holy Ghost. Of course, the New Testament has the same application. You read on in 2 Peter, you will find out that Peter admits that Paul has written some things that are hard to be understood, which some twist the rest to their own destruction, as they do also the other Scriptures. Which by implication, he says, what Paul has written is just as inspired as the other Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures that we already agree are inspired. Preachers will preach in such a way that will establish the authority of the Word of God. And it will be coming across in their language, the words that they use, the doctrines that they deal with. Even as we open up the Scriptures, and I try in in different ways to remind you we're, we're coming to the Word of God here. You should come therefore soberly and in a right attitude. Indeed, there's great resistance today to being grave in dealing with the Word of God or, or, or grave in the pulpit, being sober in the pulpit. I mean, this, is, this doesn't seem to fit with, with the, the trends of communication. Don't be grave. You'll put people off. Don't be sober. Lighten up. Lighten up. I'm not saying we have to stand behind the pulpit and have a sour demeanor continually. I trust that's not what you're uh, subjected to every Lord's Day. But at the same time, I trust also that you're understanding the serious matters we're dealing with. That as I handle the Word of God, or anyone who stands behind this pulpit handles the Word of God, there's a sense of the seriousness and the gravity of preaching the Word of God. I trust it even comes across in tone and in manner. That even non-verbal cues are communicating the seriousness of what it is that we're doing. That certainly would have been the case with regard to the Apostle Paul. He could not be dismissed as some comedian or some mere slick communicator. He was there to get to hearts and to change lives and was calling out for a response. Not just from his own appeal, but from the Word of God itself. We must, therefore, see the importance of this, establishing the authority of the Word of God. Even when you're witnessing, try to be aware 
of when an individual is trying to remove the judge of all the earth into the witness box. They do this. Even Christians do it for them. They do. And some of their witnessing techniques, essentially what they're saying is, let's put God, let's test God, let's ask Him some questions. Let's ask God some questions to see whether He can testify to His own authority, whether He really be God or not. Again, open up your Bible. Read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. God is not trying to prove to you His own existence. It's stated for you to submit to. And who are we to go around trying through eloquence and sophistry to put God in the witness box and try and prove to the world He's innocent or whatever. Believe Him. He is who he says to be, claims to be. No. No, we must preach in such a way that establishes the authority of the Word. We quote Scripture, even when men say, but I don't believe the God's Word is the Bible, or the Bible's God's Word, or I don't believe... You quote it anyway. <laughs> you quote it anyway. You bring the Word of God to them. Don't enter into all their silly arguments. Secondly, there will not only be a recognition of the Word of God, there will be a reception of the Word of God. For this cause, the text says, also thank me God without ceasing, because when you receive the Word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the Word of man, but as it is in truth the Word of God. The apostle begins with thanking God. Not because of what he has just said concerning his own testimony of being a faithful preacher and pastor, but because of what follows, he is thanking God for what occurred in the lives of those that rightly received the Word. And this is important. They receive the Word in the way they are meant to receive the Word. Now, the word received is used twice in our King James Version of the Bible and the Authorized Version. You'll see it when we receive the Word of God, which you heard of us. You received it not as the Word of man, but as it is in truth the Word of God. I want to look at these two words because the word behind them, the Greek, is, is different. So I want us to see the nuance and the distinction of what's going on here. The first word shows their desire for the Word. They had a desire for it. When you receive the Word of God, that first use of the term, when you receive the Word of God, the verb here is a, is a compound word, and the main verb there is, is, has the idea of taking, to take, but it's compounded with the, uh, prefixed with the preposition para. And we use that term, like we talk about a parachute, we, we take it to ourselves, it has that idea of taking something to yourself. And this is, this is the emphasis then of not just using the verb in its straight form, but prefixing it with the preposition, it, it's drawing in, the, they took it to themselves. They took the word to themselves, which shows that they have this desire for the Word of God. And of course, it came to them whenever the apostle and his, those that were with him, his companions, came and preached it. You see it, when you receive the Word of God, which he heard of us, he heard it of us. Now, now, some of these individuals had been sitting in a synagogue all their lives. They'd had the Old Testament Scriptures opened up all the time. 
They were familiar with the Word of God, but they had never really received it in any meaningful sense. Here now, as the Apostle comes in, and you know he has this, this, this slant on the Scriptures, which is, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of God. And this is what he opens and alleges, and this is what he, he debates and brings before them in the synagogue that, that Jesus, that was crucified and rose again from the dead, that this is the very Christ. Now they sat there, Jewish Sabbath after Jewish Sabbath, and here they are drawn out to really listen to what was being brought by the apostle and Timothy and Titus. You remember that they didn't all get on board. In Acts chapter 17 it tells us that there was great affliction or opposition to the preaching because in verse 5 we're told that some of the Jews, those that believed not, moved with envy and set all the city on an uproar. They, they, they got everyone riled up and mad. They're trying to drown out the preacher and trying to silence him and drive him away. And so those who received it are in contrast with those who, who rejected it, who opposed it. In a certain sense, here they are, and they're, they are, they're wanting to hear what Paul has to say, whereas many of the Jews were saying, no, we don't want to hear this. Silence this man. Drive him out of our borders. And so against the backdrop of hostility, those that believed, or at least at this point they're receiving it and wanting to hear it, they have a desire for it, they stand out like the moon on a clear, dark night. There's a difference here. They wanted the Word of God when their neighbors were utterly rejecting it. But that desire moves into a decision, their decision to obey the Word. And in the next use of the word received, as we have it in our English translation, it says, You received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God. And this is even stronger. It's used already in chapter 1, verse 6, when Paul says, He became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much affliction. And so the emphasis of using this particular term drives home something different, something quite distinct. It is a taking in of the Word. Rather than taking to oneself, it is a taking in. In one sense, they're, they're taking themselves to hear it. They're, they're wanting to hear it. They're taking it to themselves. But in this sense, they're bringing it into themselves. They're taking it right into their souls. And this is what occurred. It indicates the next step. And I might just add, this is a step that some perhaps this morning need to take. You're here this morning and there may be, within your mind, within your heart, a positive frame of mind toward the Scriptures and you're receiving it positively. But that is not sufficient. There needs to be this next receiving, this step on that receives it into your heart where it's not just a desire for the Word of God, but a decision to obey the Word of God. Turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I want you to see what I think is this distinction drawn out in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. John chapter 8, verse 30. He has been declaring himself to be the light of the world. Standing in a very religious context, lots of religious people gathered around him, and he's testifying of himself, who he is. And in verse 30, 
we are told, John 8, verse 30, as he spake these words, many believed on him. There's this positive reception of what he is saying. They want to hear him, even to the point where there is a certain belief, belief in there's a There's something where they're believing what he is saying. Verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Verse 32 is well known, but often misapplied. To know the truth and be set free by the truth requires a decision where you say to yourself, I will submit myself to the word that is being spoken. They are believing the words as Jesus speaks them, they believe them, but he says, look, you must continue in my word. There must be a continuity, not just an an assent, mental assent to it, where you agree to it and you say, that's very nice and that that sounds right and I, I agree and I appreciate that. But it must go deeper where there is a continuation, a submission, which is brought about by the use of the word disciples. Then you, are you my disciples? You're not just believing, but you are actual disciples. And this was the call of Christ to those that heard him. He was calling them to discipleship. He was calling them to a life transformed by his words. A life that was committed to everything he was about. And if you cannot come to terms with that, you will never go to heaven. I know some oppose this idea. They say, no, no, you can believe and and yet you don't have to accept Christ as Lord. What blasphemy is this? That you can take the benefits of Christ's redemptive work and say, I'll have the blood wash away my sin, but in that transformative power, of course, this is what comes down to, often it's a human understanding of salvation, But if we understand God is sovereignly at work in the hearts of men, He does no half measures. When He converts a man, He submits that man's heart to recognize the Lordship of the Son of God. There will no be half steps. There will will not be a a progress of, of perhaps someday, once I'm converted, then I'll become a disciple. No, those genuinely converted. And this is what Christ is getting at. He is driving this home. You say you believe? I call you to discipleship. And that requires continuity in my word. And everything I have said, you submit to it. You make it the law of your life. This is what happened in Thessalonica. They received the word, and they didn't receive it just into the ear. It went on a step further where they took it in, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. They understood that what they were hearing transcended the mere words of men and received the word as something by which to live their lives. Now let's just stop there and ask ourselves the question, have I had that step? And while the word may be misused at times and misapplied, In this context, I have no trouble with using the word decision. That you make a conscious, you reflect a conscious desire that yes, 
Yes. This is not the mere words of men. This is the word of God. In him I live and move and have my being. And he has given me his word. And it comes therefore in such a way that there is nothing more authoritative in the universe. Not my feelings, not my opinions, not my desires, not my background, my heritage, what my family think. At times I imagine we, we forget that the individuals of whom Paul is speaking and addressing most likely would have lost their family members and their friendship. Those that would not believe, those that would have nothing to do with them because they're submitting themselves to Jesus Christ. If we could have salvation and hide our recognition and living out of the lordship of Christ in our lives, that would be the much easier path. I could sit there in the synagogue and and, and I agree to it and say, yes, I'll, I'll have, I see Jesus as the Messiah coming to die for my sins, and I, I believe that, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm just covertly going to live on in the synagogue so I'm not excommunicated out of the synagogue and lose my business and all the support that I receive from members of this synagogue and this Jewish community. No, no. No, they came. In fact, that's what verse 6 of chapter 1 said, if you noticed, where you have that same term used as you have in the verse we're looking at. They received the Word of God in much affliction. It cost them something to receive it. If we are going to see then the transformative power of the Word manifested, then this is an important step, important aspect. The right receiving of the word. We don't lower the bar, bar and say, look, just, just pray a prayer with me. And then you'll be on your way to heaven, regardless of what follows. No, no, no. We're looking for lives transformed. New creations in Christ where the old things pass away and all things become new. Nothing less will do. If we lessen it, we diminish the power of the cross. We lessen the purpose for which Christ died. Thirdly, if we want to see then the transformative power of the Word, there will be a reformation by the Word of God. A reformation by the Word of God. At the end of the text, he says, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Here he brings it up to the present. That this word of God they received, rather than the word of man, they received the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It didn't just result in their conversion. It was resulting in the ongoing transforming of their lives. This is what I say, going back to what I mentioned. This is an answer to the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just that they may receive the words that the Father had given to the Son to give to them, but that they would be sanctified through the truth. They, look at it, this Word of God that they received effectually worketh also in you. The word effectually there in the Greek is the same word we get our word energy from. It has the idea of 
operating and manifesting that operation in their lives. You can see a difference in these people. One day they were walking without Christ. The next day they had received Christ rightly into their lives and hearts, submitted themselves to His Word, and the transformation began. And many of you sitting before me, you can say, you've, you've been there. We, we sang, that's why I, we sang Psalm 40. Because of the transformation that is reflected there in the language of the psalmist that he took me also up out of a Mary pit and out of the Mary clay and he set my feet upon a rock. There's, there's, there's a transition. There's a change. It's a testimony of what the Lord does for His people when they cry to the Lord and, and wait for Him. And it, Yes, it's experienced by the believer on an ongoing basis through their trials, but it also reflects a life of coming to know Christ. The experience of salvation. And having the new song put in your heart and in your mouth, even praise unto your God, that many shall see and fear and shall trust in the Lord. The Word of God continued to operate in them to change them. Is that not how, again, we, we made mention of it already, but I, I think of it again, Psalm 1, the very first Psalm, shows this, this transformation of the Word of God when it is properly received and applied to the life. His delight is in the law of the Lord, verse 2, and in His law doth He meditate day and night. And what happens? How does that word operate then in their life? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth His fruit in His season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever He doeth shall prosper. You must see the link between meditation in the word Submission to that word and the result of prosperity. Spiritual prosperity. The soul flourishing and being made fat. Being like a tree planted by water. Not just randomly there. Not a tree that randomly came from the seed of another tree and just found its way into the soil and grew upwards randomly. And perhaps in a way that was not conducive to growing in a healthy fashion. These trees are planted. There's deliberation here. As he gives himself deliberately to the Word, meditating in it day and night, he's like a tree deliberately planted by water in the most beneficial position so that he can bring forth fruit in a season and not wither. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Of course, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. It gets into the whole subject of sanctification. The Word of God is necessary to our sanctification. When you're faced with Christians struggling, doubting their faith, saying things they ought not to be saying, questioning God, having wrong ideas about God, when you hear that and see that nearly always, nearly always, that person's not reading the Word. And if they are reading the Word, they're not reading it with profit. They're not taking it as it is in truth, the Word of God. They're coming to it to make accusations against it. Again, remember what the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 8, that if you continue in my Word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth. The understanding of truth comes after submission to the truth. What we want is to reverse that. We want to change that. We want 
to see the truth and say, okay, I see it for what it is, and then I'm going to continue in it. But the Lord calls us to do something very different. He calls us to submit to it, and then we'll see the truth of it. And the reason he does that is because he's the authoritative figure in this universe. He says, submit to it because I have stated it. And once you submit to it, you'll begin to understand it. But of course, today, people will not do that. They come, as I said earlier, they put God in the witness stand. See if he, if it tests out something to be believable. Of course, they can't see the truth. They're blind. They're blind as could be. How thankful, therefore, we must be to the Word of God. There are many of us here this morning that can read verse 13, meditate on it, and say, there was my experience. I thank God without ceasing. You see that? I thank God without ceasing. I'm always thanking the Lord because when you received the Word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Thanking God for the right receiving of the word and seeing people transformed by its power. There's no greater joy. No greater joy to the individual who can put themselves there and say, I've been there. (laughs) I've known this myself. And no greater joy than watching others experience the same coming to the the Word of God and and feeling the impact of it, not just hearing it and receiving it, but making a decision to make it the law of their lives, throwing all their weight into it and saying, I'm going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and obey all that He has given in His Word. Remember what Job said in Job 23, 12, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of His lips, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Why is that? Job, why? I can't bring him back and ask him to explain it, but I think, hazard a guess, I have an idea. His food, the sustenance of life, the material bread that kept him alive would only do so for a short period of time. It was limited And he could eat his bread and he could dine with the best of food that was available. And often he did, no doubt. But he esteemed the word of God's mouth more than his necessary food because that, that gave life to him. Even as he would eat while it would give present energy, it wasn't really adding life to his years as it were. But as he would eat the Word of God as he would receive words from his God and receive into his heart. It was adding life to him. Paul talks about this. That while the outward man perisheth, regardless of what you eat, the outward man perisheth, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. We should be internally, in our being, in our spirits, far stronger than we ever were when we first believed. So Job considered his words more than his necessary food. Those at Thessalonica received it and embraced it in the same way. 
and they did so because the heart of the Scriptures, the heart of God's Word is actual, actually a message of grace. It's of His gracious condescension to sinners. A message of life to those who are in death. How can that not be received? Why should that ever be rejected? Why should we turn away from this? It is the height of folly to hear words of life and continue in a path of death and destruction, of sin, of self, and of idolatry. I like what John Knox said about the Word of God, that Scottish reformer. In a letter to other brethren in the ministry, he dealt with the Word of God. I'm going to read this paragraph to you. I want you to think about what he's saying and then ask yourself, am I continuing to live in the experience of the Word of God like that? Do I see that? Do I see it in that light? Or can, a lot, can, I, can I attribute a lot of my problems and struggles and difficulties because I don't see what John Knox understood and sought for others to understand as well? Hear what he says. For as the Word of God is the beginning of spiritual life, without which all flesh is dead in God's presence, and as it is the lantern to our feet, without the brightness whereof all the posterity of Adam does walk in darkness, and as it is the foundation of faith, without which no man understands the good will of God, so it is also the only organ and instrument which God uses to strengthen the weak, to comfort the afflicted, to reduce to mercy by repentance such as have slidden, and finally to preserve and keep the very life of the soul in all assaults and temptations. And therefore... If you desire your knowledge to be increased, your faith to be confirmed, your conscience to be quieted and comforted, or finally, your soul to be preserved in life, let your exercise be frequent in the law of your Lord God. Let your exercise be frequent in the law of your Lord God. Are you giving yourself to the Word? There are some here I fear may desire the Word, but you have not made a decision to live it out in your life. As we close here this morning, that's what I want you to do. In just a moment I pray, and I want you, I want you to realize the Lord Himself is calling you to make that step of allegiance to His Word. Commitment to Christ Embracing all the benefits of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, His sanctifying grace, and the promise of glorification one day in heaven itself. But also bringing with it that with these benefits comes a responsibility to make known my gratitude by loving His law and living it out. Let us bow together in prayer.
Their heads are bowed. For the comfort of those that feel weak. This is dealing with Paul and him bringing the word of God. You could say just as I could that I can't preach like Paul preached. But never forget one of the members of his party, Timothy, had had the experience, at least in some degree, of what this verse deals with, in part because of the help of his mother and his grandmother. Normal ladies living for the Lord, living in a home where Timothy's father was not a believer, but faithfully being instructed in the gospel so that it could be said that from a child he had known the Holy Scriptures that were able to make him wise unto salvation. If you can say that's your testimony, what a blessing you have had. Do not waste it. Do not think lightly of it. Ask yourself and answer it honestly. This very day, am I a good ground hearer of the word? Or am I hardening my heart? Resisting and rejecting. Not the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Father, we pray that thou wilt make all thy people truly appreciate the word of God. I pray it for myself. Deliver me, Lord, from ever being a distraction from the word, either drawing attention to myself or the philosophies of other men. pray the scriptures would be preeminent in this pulpit and in every ministry of this church. And I pray that that would be uniformly adhered to by all in this congregation. We pray today that thou remember those that have yet to truly give their hearts to Christ, continuing in a condition of unbelief, they're halting between two opinions. They haven't truly given themselves to the Lord Jesus. They're living a lie. Lord, show thy tender love to them. Indeed, we may say that thou hast already shown thy love by the fact that they're here this day to hear the word. We pray it would not fall on deaf ears but that it may bear fruit and bring forth fruit, even the fruit of faith and repentance in their lives. Do it this day, we pray. And remember all of us, thy people, preserve us as thy sheep. Keep us from falling till you present us faultless before the presence of your glory with exceeding joy. O God, grant, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thy blessing upon this congregation. Amen.